Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I am incredibly humbled and honored to host today's guest. This book written by Barry Michaels and Phil Stutz has made a tremendous impact on my life, and I truly feel humbled, humbled and honored to have them joining me today on the podcast. Um, Dr. Michaels is living in California as a functioning psychiatrist and just an absolute wealth of information. He's truly a gift of a person. The information and the knowledge and the wisdom he passes on to us is uh, nothing short of remarkable. And Dr. Stutz, who is the creator of The Tools, which is the book I'm referring to, um, the fact that he was willing to make time for us today to join us truly speaks of the man's character and his mission during his life. And as you hear during the interview, Dr. Stutz is suffering from a little bit of Parkinson's. And it, at times it's challenging to hear him. At times his connection isn't awesome. He even cuts out for a few minutes uh, and then he joins us again. But we did our best to edit the podcast because truly it's uh, an incredible conversation. There's so much value provided here by these two gentlemen. And uh, I just didn't want to lose this information because as I say, the tool, the book, the tools first recommended to me by Brian Johnson of uh, currently of the heroic app um, was just a, just an absolute game changer for me in understanding how to get through challenging times to think differently about improving myself as a person and ultimately get through, uh, you know, the darkness that we all have inside of us, the challenges that we all have. And we talk a little bit about today about the tools. We talk a little bit about how Phil came up with these tools and now how Barry continues to perpetuate this message uh, as we move forward. And uh, in staying with the theme, um, the person who introduced me to this book, as I say, was Brian Johnson through his incredible his incredible platform, previously called Philosopher's Notes, then called Optimize, now called Heroic. And Brian is on a mission to uh, ultimately help you curate and direct your own hero's journey. Uh, Brian has been a previous guest of the show. Uh, someone who is one of the most highly requested guests of the show. He's got decades and decades of being a student of reading, learning, and sharing his wisdom. Uh, and now his app is uh, just absolutely a phenomenal tool for people looking to optimize life. So if you haven't heard of Heroic yet, here's what they're up to. So they have been wielding technology, meaning creating this incredible app, like really, really well-designed, amazing user interface, specifically to help you move from theory to practice, to mastery in Brian's terms. Uh, the entire Heroic team have been working tirelessly to get this app out so that ultimately you can have access to all of the best information on the planet uh, from all of the best books. So Brian has actually read and summarized over 600 books. And that was the original foundation of his business. He then evolved into uh, what he calls this plus ones, which is adding more value over and above the summaries of the books. And now he's moved into his coaches program, which I actually did in 2020, a 10-month coaches program to ultimately help you take this information and teach it to one first yourself, and then anyone who else in your life who you're hoping to, to help optimize. Um, talk about the hero's journey. There's just so much behind Heroic that I strongly suggest you guys check out. Um, there's incredible wealth of information. I could spend the next half an hour really going through all of the details. But first and foremost, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash heroic 
and you're going to get hooked up with 20% off the discount um, for your entire first year. And it's incredibly, incredibly cheap and incredibly, incredibly valuable. Um, so this might be some of the best uh, small amount of money you invest this year. And so the way I use it personally, I like to read uh, pre-read books. What I say is pre-read. So Brian's actually summarized over 600 books into between six and 10 minute videos and, and, and about a six to 10 page PDF. So instead of reading a book, which can take eight to 12 hours, I'm going to go read the PDF first. I'm going to go watch Brian's summary, see the big ideas, extract the big ideas, and then decide if I actually want to go read that book. And sometimes I don't. And sometimes I, I just get the big ideas and there's so much value in that. So Without more rambling for me, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash heroic, and then sit down and enjoy my podcast with Barry Michaels and Phil Stutz, because it was one of the favorite ones I ever did. And I truly felt honored and privileged with these gentlemen joining me today. And I appreciate your patience in us trying to optimize the audio and ultimately patience in um, understanding Phil and his um, description of things. So enjoy the show and listen all the way to the end, because we have some golden nuggets coming at you. love to get into, uh, you know, Barry, starting with you, your background is, is really interesting. So obviously having gone to Harvard, become a lawyer, kind of decided that wasn't for you, and then went into uh, ultimately this, this idea of being a psychotherapist. I'd love to just have you kind of walk down the path of how that began for you. Yeah, it, um, you know, when I was young, I, I think my family always really emphasized getting good grades, academic achievement, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think my father had always wanted to be a lawyer and he couldn't afford, you know, to even go to, uh, you know, higher education. So he. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, he became a businessman. His, I mean, to really go back into it, his father was kind of a petty crook. And so I think my father wanted to be a lawyer to sort of make up for that in really? certain ways. <laughs> yeah, there was never any really overt pressure to be a lawyer, but there was a lot of overt pressure to do something that was sort of deemed uh, prestigious and acceptable, you know, to the larger society. Yeah. And I also was interested in politics. So I wanted to go into politics and law seemed like a good thing to do to get into there. So anyway... I went to law school. I did really well in law school. I enjoyed law school. I started practicing law and realized that I just hated it. I mean, I mean, I mean, I literally hated every minute of it. I just, I remember sitting in the law library in my law firm, just thinking, how do I get out of this? Like, I, I hated every moment of it. I stayed there for three years, basically because I just had no idea what to do next. And I still just couldn't stand it. And so I just one day I up and quit and I had no idea what to do next, but it was the best. It was the scariest thing I've ever done and the best thing I've ever done because it just opened up vistas that never would have been open for me before. You know, I went to Europe. I sort of bummed around for a while. And what I realized was that the thing I did enjoy about my law firm was that all of the other lawyers would come to me to complain about their problems. And I was actually pretty good at talking to them, you know, talking them through it. And I realized, well, I could do that for a living, you know? So um, I went back to school, got my degree. And then I think the year I graduated, I met Phil and he just completely revolutionized the way I conducted myself as a psychotherapist. It was new, catalyzing, energizing, it was a completely new way of doing therapy that I'd ever been in touch with before. 
So that's interesting. So, so yeah. Phil, I'd love to hear from you what you were doing that was so revolutionary. Obviously, I'd love to hear kind of how you guys connected also, but, you know, kind of rewinding behind what Barry was doing, saying like, what was it that he was so enamored by that caught you know, his attention, ultimately, what led you to that? Because obviously, if you're doing something so unique, you had a unique thought process. Yeah, you know, I think part of the problem was that because it was unique, it was it was very hard for the rest of, let's say, organized psychology or psychiatry to actually connect to it. He, I think because of his instincts, he has tremendous intelligence, instincts, and tremendous work ethic. He has the greatest work ethic of every per, any person wow. I've ever met in my life. So that's just by way of saying he was able to recognize something, I think. And also he's a practical person. Anyway, here's what happened. I, I, was, um, I went through the New York City um, uh, medical establishment training. I, I, I did my re- residency in psychiatry in New York in a place called Metropolitan Hospital, which you'd be, if you've ever seen the movie... Um, hospital that it was filmed actually where I trained so it was a um it was a fantastic training um but but it had to end at some point at the end of it they started to give you patient individual patients they could treat for on your on your own that you weren't allowed to do that until the very last year of your residency so I started to treat these people and right away I had a problem with it the problem was Nobody really told me exactly what to do, but I knew one thing, which is people would come to the sessions, they'd leave the session, and they'd leave it without anything tangible to give them hope. They'd leave the session without a sense of where we were going. They'd leave the session without um, homework that they could do in between. Mostly they left the sessions feeling just about as badly as when they walked in, sometimes worse. I didn't like it. Not that I'm such a great guy or such an altruist, um, but as the thing went forward and, and it became a career, you know, a profession, I couldn't take people's money. And I was happy to earn money, but I couldn't take it if they weren't getting something. You know, I, I felt like I was, I was um, selling air, so to speak. So um, without um, wasting time at all, the fights I had with my supervisors and all that stuff, I decided that I was going to try to, before, before anyone could leave my office after a session, I was going to try to give them something. Now, what does that something mean? It means that we tr- try to delineate the symptomatic problem they were having without, without um, so much uh, attention to the cause. Um, and then I would try to, um, I would invent something in my mind. Like, here's the classic one that I invented, which is people are avoidant. Probably more than any, other than the anxiety, avoidance is probably the biggest problem that it shrinks faces. So, and avoidance has to do with fear, right? So I, I developed this thing, I call it the reversal of desire, because the, the normal, the normal average person's desire is to avoid fear to avoid anything that's uncomfortable, right? So I, I, I developed this tool, basically it's called the reversal of desire. So instead of the typical desire, wanting to avoid fear, I made them go right into the fear. And there's a tool and steps to that and everything. Um, so that was the very beginning of, the, and, and it worked a little bit. Um, if you want, I mean, I could tell you some of the background because 
one of the interesting things about me is that I, I was able to take like this particular thing about the reversal of desire. I got the idea for that too when I was when I was in the tenth grade. I was like I weighed about ninety two pounds, and I was I was like the youngest kid in all high school. And we had a mechanical drawing. I don't know if you know what that is. It's like a draft. Yep. So they anyway. So I'm 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 like the worst drawer draft draft draftsman you, you could possibly imagine. So they sit this kid next to me, and the kid the kid sits down. And I was 13. He looked like he was about 19 and a half. And it so happens that he was he was a star running back, not not only for our whole high school. But in the whole city, he was first team all city, half bat, whatever they called it. And at first, I was scared to even look at this kid. He was so much old. You know, he had forearms like as big as my chest. That, that's what it looked like. Anyway. But we, neither of us could do the mechanical drawing. We just couldn't do it. So we started to bullshit and talk to each other. And this guy, obviously, he, the only thing he wanted to talk about was football. And he told me something that was amazing. He said, um, you... Um, he said, I'm sorry. He said, I am not, not the most talented halfback in the city. I'm not the fastest. I'm not the most elusive. But he says, I have one advantage over all the other running backs. And he, he says, I like to get hit. I like it. And I'm looking at him like he had lost his fucking mind. You know, I, I was intimidated enough. And then this guy, it was like the most animalistic. And he says, I, I call for the ball from scrimmage on the first play. I went right at a linebacker, a defensive and whoever it is. And he, I don't try to avoid him. He pops me and I'm, I'm on my ass. And he says, when I get up from that hit, I felt like I could conquer the world. And even though I was 13 years old, I said, hmm, <laughs> this has got to be something to this. And this one of the things stuck in my mind. Now cut to 20 years later, I, I began to experiment with that. And, it worked right away. As I was um, developing that tool, I realized I had a talent for this. For, for and, I, and I would make it a point to demand of myself that everybody that, that would leave, they would leave with a tool. I mean, there's a million of them. Maybe we'll go over some of them. Um, but that's how it started. Um, all right, that's enough about that. Uh, Phil, I love that. That's a great story. It was actually going exactly where I wanted to go. I'm curious what it was about you at such a young age that drew you to the desire to help people. It's not a very common thing that a 13-year-old would be drawn uh, to. What are you, psychic or something? <laughs> when I was nine years old, um, I had a brother that died. Um, I was nine, he was three. Um, and my parents... Um, he died suddenly of a rare kind of yeah, kidney cancer. My parents were not religious. They had nothing in terms of dealing with it. So the whole family collapsed. Out of that collapse, I became the leader of the family at age nine. And I, I, a whole other story about my father. I became his psychiatrist. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, but I, I, I seemed to have... I had an optimistic, soothing presence. Let me put it that way. Well, here's the thing. My father wanted me to be a doctor anyway, but after my brother died, he really wanted me to be a doctor. Um, and because it was, it was New York, you know, there were various violent things happening, one of which was um, one of my friends was thrown down an elevator shaft. 
he, he lived. So we went to visit him in the same hospital, Metropolitan Hospital, where I was trained, just by coincidence. When we're walking out of the hospital after having seen him, my father turns around, he points to the hospital, and he says, that's the only profession. He goes, that's the only, which means it doesn't matter what else you do in life, you're a fucking failure unless you become a doctor. So my my younger brother died, so that was part of the, my my life's mission was, would be to fight death. I mean, now it sounds insane. Um, and then I had this experience with, down the elevator shaft where, where it was reinforced. Um, the funniest thing of all of it is that my family's psychiatry was nothing. It was completely looked down on. It wasn't real medicine. But my father, to his credit, he, he said, you, I'm going to pay for medical school. You just have to graduate. You can take whatever you want. And so I took psychiatry. Well, I felt plenty guilty about it because I enjoyed it. It was the only thing in medicine I, I really enjoyed. Did that answer the question? I don't remember. It very, very much answers the question. Yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to have uh, maybe, Barry, you could kind of walk down the path of telling us a little bit more about the reversal of desire, because it sounds like for both of you, that maybe is the most impactful tool. Yeah, it's certainly one of the most impactful tools. Just to back up for a moment and fill in, you know, some of what Phil was talking about, you know, up until the time I met Phil, I understood what traditional psych psychology was about, which was, it was premised on a false premise. And the false premise was, in order to overcome problems, you have to dive deeply into what caused the problem. Now, if just a moment thinking about that, it doesn't really make any sense. You know, you don't need to know how your toilet got stuck in order to unstick the toilet. And yet, when it came to the human psyche, traditional psychology believed that you needed to delve into causation in order to solve the problem. When I met Phil, it was such a revolution in my thinking because what he said was, no, you don't need to understand it. And even if you do understand it, that's not actually going to solve the problem for you. What you need are forces that don't feel like they're available to you when you're experiencing the problem, which gets us to the problem of avoidance. When you're afraid to do something or when you can't get yourself to, you can't discipline yourself to sit down and write or do a task or write an email or anything that, you know, we all avoid a, a wide, wide variety of things. What's happening inside of you is that you're a little bit afraid of the pain that is involved in moving forward. Whenever you move forward and do something, even if it's something you want to do, there's a little bit of pain and discomfort attached to that. A, because you don't know what's going to happen and B, because it requires effort and effort, you know, we're all lazy. We'd rather not expend effort than expend it. Okay. Which means that in order to move forward, you need to change your relationship to pain. You need to accept that pain is actually part of life, that pain is actually part of moving forward. I mean, I see you nodding. I'm sure that you're incredibly familiar with this as a trainer because you got to get people to face pain all day, every day. So the, the secret of the reversal of desire is that it takes our normal desire, which is to avoid pain at all costs, and it reverses it. It says, bring on the pain. 
Are we saying bring on the pain because we're masochists? No, we're saying bring on the pain because pain is an absolutely necessary part of life and you can't move forward without facing it. And by desiring it, you shift the direction that you're moving in. Generally, we move away from pain when you desire something, you move toward it. And the moment you start to move toward pain, something really magical happens. I'm amazed even now, after I've used the tool for 35 years, you move toward pain and you feel free and excited to embrace it, strangely enough. You don't feel pain, you feel excitement, euphoria almost. So that's the way the reversal of desire works. Yeah, and that, that's what the, I call it was the law of pain, which is if you confront pain and go into it, it actually diminishes. If you back away from it and try to avoid it, it gets bigger. And that's the law. You can try it in small things, big things. Where, so, so it sounds like th- there's a bit of the New Yorker in, in this uh, tool, right? There's the, the a bit of like the, you know, I hear kind of the New Yorker coming out. It feels like the New Yorker, like, bring it on. I love pain. Pain sets me free. That little bit of like New Yorker's edge. Do you think it was part of that that kind of uh, initiated this tool, we'll say? I do, in a way. I mean, in the most superficial way. I mean, yeah. he took it and ran with it, so to speak. But yeah, yes, it was, it was the, the main thing was schmuck. If you're going to take people's money and time and claim you're a doctor or whatever, you better deliver something. Yeah, I mean, that, that was an ethos. And I never thought of it as a New York thing. But, yeah, it, it is a New York thing, no question. Uh, yeah, in California, we would just talk it to death. <laughs> <laughs> there, there may not be that New York swagger if it was in California, right? It'd be kind of like the, the soft, like cushy landing rather than like yeah. the, we're going right through it. Yeah. Kind of a kind of an off-topic question, still on topic, but but a little bit of a tangent. Someone who lacks trust, right? So um, it seems as though that uh, some clients I experience, including myself at times, uh, have an innate lack of trust for authority. So for you know my parents, for is that something that you would recommend one of the tools for? Yeah, I don't know that there's a you know a single specific tool for that, but. See, the truth is tools evoke forces that you weren't aware of prior to that. You just felt stuck, you know, and you weren't aware that there was something there that could actually help you. When you use tools, regardless of what particular tool you're using, and you use them over and over and over again, and you start to experience these, I I hate to use this language because it sounds so cheesy, but these helping forces, like... However you explain them, you could call it God, you could call it forces in your your unconscious. Working for you rather than against you, basically. Exactly. What starts to happen is you start to trust something higher than yourself. And that changes your entire relationship with authority. I, I guess what I'm really saying is that authority figures are really just avatars or stand ins for your relationship with something higher than you, however you want to define that. And when you can start to trust that, then you can start to trust them. And the trust is more real because you're not, in other words, part of the reason we don't trust authority figures is that they're fallible. And we know that they're fallible. And so we're wary of putting our trust in them. Higher forces are infallible. And when you can trust them, then you can trust a a physical, literal human authority figure, knowing that 
he'll probably make a mistake at some point. It won't be the end of the world. You know, it's like right. he, he can be human, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. One of the things you've really seemed to take in a run with over the last few years, Barry, is the the idea of discussing the shadow and doing the shadow work. And that was one of the things I was really excited to dig into today. If you want to, because it seems like there's a parallel there, right? If someone's lacking trust in an authority figure, it's probably to do with something, something within the shadow that maybe myself or other people aren't accepting. Yeah. I, I could talk about the shadow from now to eternity. I love the entire subject. In fact, just to give a plug um, my business partner, Kristen Sargent, and I are giving a week-long um, seminar at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, in July, on July yep. 4th. Yep. So, um, just I think it's sold out already. I tried to apply, but it's, I signed up for the other one. There's two, you do two events, right? No, just one. There, there's another shorter event, I think. Maybe it's online. I forget what it is, but I signed up for the second one. <laughs> I have to find out about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The shadow is this just unfathomably rich resource that we have inside of us that shows up in the form of our worst qualities. It's one of these strange paradoxical things in life where the part of you that you tend to be most ashamed of, that you least want to reveal to other people, it might be a secret foible that you have or an obsession that you have or it might be that you feel like you're know, not good looking or that you don't speak well in public or whatever it is. It's the part of you that you're most ashamed of that if you're able to forge a relationship with it, turns out to be this unfathomably rich resource for you. One way to understand that, by the way, is that if you're constantly hiding or repressing or rejecting this part of you, you're coming to reality with half of you instead of all of you. You're coming to all human interactions feeling like, God, I sure hope they don't see that shadow you know, be behind me. Whereas if you can accept your shadow, and I mean fully embrace that ugly motherfucker you know, who you've been ashamed of your entire life, then you're free. You just stop caring what other people think about you, which means that you can express yourself with a freedom and a spontaneity that you've never felt before. I mean, I'm a really good example of that. I was afraid of public speaking for my entire life. I mean, just terrified of it. And through shadow work, it has turned out to be one of the most enjoyable, fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. And I'm not, I'm not only not afraid, I look forward to it. And it's really genuine. It's, it's the, I mean, I look back and it's like, Jesus, have you changed? It's crazy. So is it being willing to uh, acknowledge, accept, and maybe engage with those parts of you that you simply haven't wanted to let out in the past? Or is it, is it as going as far as doing the things that maybe you would have been afraid to do in the past? Like, if you could walk us through some of those kind of intricacies of it. It's really both. A big part of shadow work is just forging an image of your shadow so that you can interact with it in your imagination. That's going to sound strange to most of your listeners. Like, what are you doing? You're talking to like an imaginary friend or something. Um, My listeners hear it all. It's all the weird stuff for me. So it's okay. Okay, good. Um, because very, very quickly, what we find is that when people forge an image of their shadow, the image becomes very real. So all of a sudden, you'll be talking to your shadow and it will say something to you that you didn't think ahead of time. 
Like you're not making it up and putting those words in its, you know, in its mouth. It's interacting with you. So it's a, you know, you can, you can get a little flavor of this. If you go back to a vivid dream that you've had where you're talking to some figure and the figure is talking to you just as if they were a real person in the real world. That's what shadow work is like, except you're awake. You're not asleep, you know, while it, while it's happening. And what happens is the, the stronger your relationship with your shadow gets, the, the more it begins to trust that you're not going to shame it or reject it anymore or judge it anymore, the more it becomes a resource for you. Um, I've had my shadow tell me things that I should do that were scary for me that turned out to be the best things I've ever done, you know, risks that I should take, things that confrontations that I should have because I'm shy about confronting people. And unerringly, it knows better than I do what what's best for me, you know, in a certain way. So it becomes an ally instead of a source of shame. Do you carve time in the day to explore it? Or is it just something that as it comes up, you allow it to come through and you maybe engage it? I try to tell people to do both. You know, I think in the beginning, when you're doing shadow work, when you've just sort of familiarizing yourself with the concept of it, it's really good to have a specific time every day when you're going to interact with your shadow, like at the beginning of the day or at the end of the day, or if you're a freak like me, you know, both, you know, just to bookend the day. It's good to start off with just very basic questions like, how are you doing? You know, how are you feeling? What's it like living inside of me? Is there anything that I did today that um, you really liked that you really appreciated. Is there anything I did that really put you off, you know, in some way, you know, and it's really amazing how the shadow will say, yeah, there was at one point where you were interacting with that person and you got like a little shy and you didn't, you weren't bold enough, you know, and I really wish you had just stepped out and said what you wanted to say, you know, kind of thing, which is really helpful. You just like getting feedback from somebody who's going to tell you the truth and who's living inside of you, watching you every moment of the day and knowing when you're sort of pulling your punches, when you're really not being truly yourself, you know, kind of thing. Certainly like this ultimate form of journaling and reflection, right? It's like journaling within with your higher self or with a higher version of yourself. Exactly. Do you think there's only one version of the shadow or one version that lives within inside of you? Is there multiple? No, I think there are multiple versions. In fact, I think there's probably ultimately countless versions of the shadow. What Phil and I have done is try to sort of separate them into like two or three categories. The, the first category is the, the classic shadow, which Jung talked about. Jung, Carl Jung was the, was the yep. person who sort of invented the concept of the shadow. Um, and that, that's what we would call the inferior shadow, not because it is inherently inferior, but because it, it, it's constituted, uh, it's made out of all of the traits that we think of as inferior, you know. Maybe I feel like I wasn't educated well enough, or maybe I feel like I'm not articulate enough, or maybe I feel like I'm not good looking or not attractive to the opposite sex or, you know, whatever it is. The second version of the shadow is the evil shadow, which is not, again, not inherently evil, but it's whatever qualities we regard as bad, you know, things that our parents told us, don't be that way, don't be selfish or don't, you know. 
And, and the, the evil shadow is very important because it often holds your deepest ambitions. It, it, it's the part of you that knows what it wants and is willing to do anything to get it. Yeah, doesn't care what anybody thinks. It just wants, it's just looking for the fulfillment of who you are, who you really are inside. Is that some type of synergy with the ego? It sounds like, you know, the, I don't know, I'd like to differentiate there. So obviously the ego is the one that's protecting you. It's the one that that maybe cares about you. And so it sounds like there may be some parallel there. In this lexicon, the ego would be the part of you that cares more about being a good little boy and attaining the approval of your parents or the authority figures than it cares about the deepest ambitions of the shadow. The shadow wants to become who it's meant to be. The ego wants to fit in and be acceptable to the parents. So it's going to put down the shadow. And that's, that's why it regards it as evil is because it's, it's not really evil as a, as an objective judgment. It's evil because it threatens getting the approval of the, of the authority figures. Do you think the shadow is the most accurate name for it? It's just because it kind of looms behind you or it looms inside of you, or it sounds like it may need a different nomenclature if it's ultimately aspiring to allow you to, live at your highest and best. Maybe it doesn't, maybe the connotations of shadow is incorrect. I'm curious your thoughts on that. Well, there's one good part about, about naming it that, which is you can't get rid of your shadow. Um, your shadow follows you around all day. <clears throat> I think that's, that's the original genesis of the idea. Um, it's a good question, though. I, don't, I, I just spell it out, inferior shadow. That's what I call it. Evil shadow. Then there's a sick shadow to make it more complicated. What's the third one? This, this, uh, sixth. sixth. Yeah, these are these are all things that are let's say socially undesirable that we we want to hide. The, the first one, the the, um, uh, the inferior shadow, is ob- obviously um, something you're ashamed of some, somewhere. The the evil shadow doesn't have any shame at all, but the the the, the third one, the sixth shadow, so, so each of these things have something that's, that's not, each of these things have something you like, you wish weren't there, but they are there. I don't know if Barry mentioned that or not. But that's how Jung originally said it. He said, so part of yourself is there, it's not going away. Um, there's nothing you can do about that. Um, so, and that's why, that's why he called it the shadow. Um, but the, the sixth shadow, I don't know if I've ever, have you dealt with this, Barry? Have I, we talked about this? The sick shadow? No. Yeah, okay. So, so the third and the deepest human weakness is what I call sickness. It means we're mortal. It means we're eventually going to die. And in a certain sense, we're weak. Now, the sick shadow um, uh, only thrives when, when it's part of a matrix. And you can you can call you can call it the field, or you can call it the um, the, the the great mother, if you want. But whatever it is, and oh, and another thing you should know about this, and stop me if it's going too far afield. Um, the, the, the 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 sixth shadow has to do with life, as paradoxical as that may sound. And um, the, the 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 best. So the, mo- the most profound archetype of life is a tree, believe it or not. So the sixth shadow has to be turned into a tree that grows up 
you know, beyond the um, beyond the earth and, and up in, the, in this whatever you want to call it field. Every, all life, all life forces are connected. So healing depends to a large degree on accepting the evil shadow, using the evil shadow, not evil shadow, um, uh, sick shadow. And in the sick shadow, the sick shadow can, can connect to that tree of life much better than because the, the, the other shadows are, are lying about what they're capable of. They, they, they posture themselves as separate individual life forms. I see it as a, as a triangle facing yeah. downwards, and the, and the six shadows on the bottom. It, it's, it, it, it's, you have to find it's a very, very deepest level of life. Um, anyway, so that's my my. That, sound, that sounds incredibly interesting. I'd love to have either one of you kind of expand on that a little bit, because if it's, if it's the, the way you're connecting into life and higher power, it seems like both of you kind of keep coming back to this concept of using the tools to allow yourself to connect into these, these higher forces. And it sounds as though, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, the shadow or the sick shadow is the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, that's, that's actually correct. Um, I mean, technically... The sixth shadow, see the bottom of the, if you look, think of it as an, as an image, the bottom of it is roots, and, and every root of every plant in the whole world is connected, at least in a, in a mythological sense. So, so that's, the, that's the bottom ground um, connection. But then the tree grows, and then you have the, the, the green level layer, and that does not connect automatically. The green layer, um, okay, the, the, the bottom thing is by the roots, right? The bottom level, roots is physical, you can see it. There's, all, there's also a uh, complementary um, level of connection up here in the green layer. And that connects by a field. You can't see the connection. Every, you, don't, you don't see every tree or leaf connected, but they are all connected. So the trick is to, to move from the roots up where at a higher level you need a field. You, you know what a field? How yeah, of course, yep, for sure. Um, which brings us to a whole other thing about the field. Did you guys talk about that yet? No. No. Well, you look at me like you want me to talk about it. I, I love you to run with it, Phil. Is that okay, Barry? It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I just want to say one thing very quickly, though, which is if, if, if your listeners are having trouble, you know, sort of relating to this, just it's the simplest example is, you know, when it, whenever Phil and I have a patient who gets sick, you know, it's sad and it's difficult that they get sick, but they almost invariably experience an immediate deep appreciation of life that they never experienced before. That's the sick shadow because it's sort of in touch with mortality and the sort of temporalness of life. It's also much more in touch with the preciousness and the appreciation for life. Yeah. Do you think some of the, the sicknesses that people express are actually uh, an expression of a repressed shadow? So like maybe a thousand percent. Yeah. A thousand percent. I, I would go so far as to say it's the shadow dragging us down, begging us to experience life at its most basic root 
like level. Did you talk- and the more and the more civilized and sophisticated our society becomes, the, the stronger that pull is going to get. My question was just like more the the stronger that pull is going to get to kind of return back to the the true nature of the self. Yes, like- the shadow will not allow us to become rootless. It won't allow us to go floating up. You know, rootless. That's it. Can you explain what that means, Barry? Rootless. It it the shadow grounds us. The shadow says, not in words, in much more powerful ways, you are housed in a finite physical body that deteriorates. You're a spirit, but you're a spirit in the material world, housed in a material body that is going to die. And, and it, it's not saying that to bring you down. It's not saying that to depress you. It's actually saying that so that you can get in touch with the appreciation that you have for being alive. For, for having this experience of, you know, of, of being alive. The, one of the dangers of our like, incredibly sophisticated society is that we lose touch. I mean, you're probably more in touch with this than we are because you work with people's bodies. People lose touch with the fact that they're housed in a physical body. And when you lose touch with that, you lose touch with death. And when you lose touch with death, you lose touch with the appreciation that you should have for every single moment of life. That's interesting. So is that coming back to this idea of, of people who are constantly as- aspiring or uh, pursuing things outside of themselves, this idea of grandeur and accomplishment? Obviously, there, there's some requirement and necessity for accomplishment, but finding ways to incorporate that and staying grounded and doing things that ultimately your body needs to thrive? I think what we're saying is that there's, there's an un- often an unconscious drive behind that. There's, there's nothing wrong with accomplishing things. We're all in favor of that. But there's often an unconscious drive behind that for immortality, to prove that you've transcended the physical body, that you're no longer, that you're really not going to die, you know, kind of thing. Now, I'm not saying that anybody thinks that consciously, but it's, the, but it's the sick shadow that actually roots you, that keeps you grounded, that says, no, you're still going to die. Yeah, and there's one other aspect to it, which is the sick shadow is the best part of you at going through death and rebirth. Um, it's, it's almost made for that. So if, if you use death or deterioration very differently, deterioration or death, as long as it leads to a rebirth and whichever one you guys mentioned, it leads to a connection. So the connection to the whole world, universe, whatever, is, is, is not just the way of connecting to the to this sick shadow. It's, it's using the sick shadow as a, uh, how would you say it, as a conduit to, to, to the whole world of life. And because death is like masculine, something, it doesn't have to be physical death. It could be a failure, a depression, whatever. Um, that's that's kind of masculine. That's like a strike to push your forehead or something. But but the rebirth is feminine, and it requires feminine requires a connection to everything. It requires wholeness. How do you want to say it? And that, that itself to the ego is a is a weakness. But it's actually necessary. I thought you were going to talk some about the war. The thing we're, we're starting now. Um, 
Oh, we're sort of re refurbishing our website and and launching a a whole new yeah membership. Yeah, so we're going to make the, the tools available to the public. It'll be cheaper for them than seeing a shrink and probably the more effective. Um, so, but the way we want to get people's attention is not so much to talk about it in terms of psychological problems. We want to talk about it in terms of societal problems. How does a societal problem, let's say the pandemic, just an example, how does that fit into what we're doing with individual clients? What's actually going on there? Why is it so pervasive? And why is every fucking person, every person freaked out? It's unprecedented. It's, it goes beyond the United States also. The answer, there's a war going on, but it's an invisible war. It, you can't take its model from past wars, which were more crude, you know. And think about it. You have a, you have a war within the human immune system. You have a, a, um, you have a war in, in, in the extremities of political political views and, and how people uh, yeah, you have a war in terms of absolute terror about the un- unknowability of the future, etc. etc. It's unprecedented. Um, I don't know what to do about that. No, I'm just kidding. So one good way to think about this is, is to think about it as a war. Um, and it gets complicated because the war will both oppose you and try to keep you from making progress, but will also help you. Now, the fuck would that be? It helps you because your attempt to deal with the war, let's say the classic one is uncertainty. How do you deal with uncertainty? It doesn't matter whether, whether it's uncertainty that you experience in the third grade when your parents moved you to a new school or that you, you don't know what Russia's going to do next or you, you don't know what the next uh, iteration of, of, of the variant is going to be. It's, it's the human, there are a few of them, but it's the human challenge. If we, and, and, okay, here's a trick, and, and vaccination is a good, a good example of it. That people say, well, vaccination, I should have free will and do what I want, it's my body, of course. However, they left out one thing, when they assert that right, they're also endangering other people. I mean, that's pretty clear, unless you believe in fairy tale. And even that is not the bottom line. But it, it, it requires, okay, here's, here's one way to look at the goal of human development and evolution. is to develop the individual potential, passion, and at the same time, not let the, not make that make you separated from the rest of the human race. So you have to have a collective connection, and simultaneously, you have to have personal goals and, and, per, and personal sense of direction. So that's that's the problem that's facing us. I just want to add one thing to what Phil is saying because it's so it really goes to the heart of what I learned from Phil, which is every single individual's struggle against his demons, whatever his demons are, whether it's anxiety or depression or we talked about avoidance earlier on, um, it has this individual component to it, which is what psychotherapy has recognized since since its inception. But but what um, what he taught me is such an important thing is that every single individual struggle against his own demon 
will have a profound effect on the war that he's talking about, the collective war. Because the collective is literally just that. It's a collective of individuals, you know, kind of thing. And so, you know, what we see in our, I don't know what to call it, it's really kind of like a community, is that um, the health of the community is improving as the health of each individual improves. And health may be not the right word. I, I mean that in a very broad sense. But, but as each member of the community uses tools, the overall health of the entire community grows and becomes more and more robust. So every time you use a tool, you're fighting a war and everybody benefits, at least all the good guys benefit. Yeah. So it's using a tool is not the way they characterize it as behavioristic, superficial, mechanical. It's exactly the opposite. The stuff that's superficial is the, to do it without, without tools. So and, I, and, and I'm a good example of that. You know, literally, when, when I use tools, I'm a better husband. I'm a better father. I'm a better friend. Like it literally affects the people around me and vice versa. Did you ever try to do something and fail? You try to do something and fail. You fail, you fail, you fail. Finally, you give up. The next day it happens by itself. Have you ever had that experience? Yeah. Okay. That, the thing of I gave up, but it happened anyway, that's, it's like the field did it. It's an invisible, super powerful, intelligent force that wants to support and enhance your personal goals and give you the power to achieve your goals, but at the same time, do it in a way that um, makes a contribution to the collective. So no human being could figure out how to do that because in some ways they're opposites, but the field knows how to do it. Now, there are four laws of the field, and the field's a very peculiar. First of all, it's a female force. You can't force it to do anything. It, it works on um, uh, relationships. You have to have a relationship with the field. And here are the four. Um, if you don't have the relationship, it goes away. The field's like up here. And if, if you violate the, the, the laws that I'm going to outline for you, it, it like drifts away. Not because it's punishing you. It's because it can't see you. It can't find you. So the human psyche has to raise itself up to a little bit higher levels to get advantage of the field. Um, so here, here I'm going to give you quickly, obviously all these things are complex, but the first one is, um, uh, is what do they call it? Non-attachment. Yeah, it is the, it's called the potency of non-attachment. So what, what does that mean? It means I want this very badly. I'm trying to get it but I'm also willing not to have it. So you're, you're an athlete, probably you're an ex-athlete, I assume, is that right? Yep. What did you play? I played everything growing up, and I ended up becoming a professional bodybuilder in my grown-up years. Okay, so if, if you know, um, you had the expression, I had the, um, the experience once when I was a, I was a freshman in, in college on the freshman team, we, we played the school in basketball. It was terrible. I think they were called Newark of Rutgers. Anyway, we were killing them. We were winning by 40 points. I said, let's go home. Why are we going to have to finish the game? And then a peculiar thing happened. I was about 25 feet from the basket, and I shot. But just as I let go of the ball, it was a, the referee was off to the left, and I saw him raise his whistle to his mouth. So I figured he was going to call the play dead. So I'm in the air. I see him. I think the, the play is dead. 
and I'm totally relaxed, whoosh, from 25 feet. And I said, I was 16 years old. I said, geez, wouldn't it be nice if I could have that degree of relaxation and focus all the time? Now, that was when I was 16. 20 years later, I tried to develop it. But you can see when you're fully relaxed, meaning you're not attached to the outcome, you actually get better outcomes. It's a paradox. So anyway, that's so. So when I saw him raise the whistle, it was the potency of non-attachment. I, I was not attached. That's that's rule number one. <clears throat> rule number two is called microtransactions, and this you could um, you can go on forever with this. But a microtransaction says every interaction you have, especially if you're in a position of authority. Um, if you're managing something, if, you, if you're the boss, but, but it's true for everybody. Every time you interface with another human being, it's a chance either to make them feel you and them are part of the same tribe, so to speak, same species. And in that sense, we're, we're equal or not. And, um, it, you know, so the typical thing is a guy is working hard, and then he gets up to go to the men's room or something, and he passes the janitor on the way into the into the men's room. Now, most guys who say, oh, hi, they won't even look at him, they'll go do their business and come back. But if you're practicing the um, microtransactions, you got to, I tell you, I don't give a shit, because I treat guys that run, you know, huge companies. You, you stop for a second, you look them in the eyes, and even better if you know his name, how are you? Whatever. You know, it takes five seconds. But what that does, it's weaving. It's, it's weaving um, a connection between you and everybody in the organization. So, all right. So that's, and we go on and on with that, but that's the microtransaction. The next one is called commitment. And commitment means, very simple, commitment means you're not allowed to quit. No matter what happens, you're not allowed to quit. Now, why is that important? It's not that the goal we're going for is so crucial. It's the process of not quitting that evokes the human higher self. And the human higher self is, um, is immortal. When you die, nothing, nothing goes with you into the next world, so to speak, except your willful acts that you do not quit on. So when, when, you're, when you're doing something or trying to do something, and you don't quit. What you're actually doing is, is evoking your, your higher self. So that's the way I think of it is that the field is infinite. The only part of you, a human, finite human being that's infinite, is your commitment. That's right. Infinite commitment connects you with the infinite part of the field. Well, I wish I was as articulate as you are. I will I'll just stagger by the last one. The, the last one is self um, control. Restraint, yeah, is is self restraint, and the reason that one is important is if, if you if you lose your self restraint, you eat a cookie, you you get drunk when you shouldn't. It doesn't really matter what you have a fight with somebody you can't control yourself. All of those things bring you down to a lower level, and on that lower level, the the field can't see you. It's not punishing. It doesn't even know you're there. So each one, each one of these little things that you use to, um, what do you call it? Uh, gratify yourself. Yeah, yeah, immediate gratification, whatever, um, is actually, a, amazingly enough, restraining yourself from something, even a small thing like eating a cookie, 
is actually a spiritual practice. And, and what it does is, and this way I don't think I have time for, but it requires a spiritual force to restrain yourself. And in that, in that restraint, you develop a power that goes way beyond just not eating the cookie. So anyway, so that, those are the four rules of the field. And <laughs> when I first kind of developed these, I, most people said, as you're in Southern California, it's missed those bullshit. There was one group that took it very seriously and they, they were writing down what it was. And that, that, that group was guys who run big companies, amazingly enough. Why is that? Because they have to make so many decisions so quickly and they can't possibly have enough information. They just don't. So if you have somebody like that, and I I say to them, you can get this indefinable, mysterious, invisible force on your team. They don't give a shit what the theory is behind or anything. They say, okay, sign me up, which I found was quite a surprise. Two questions that call, kind of follow that up. Um, one, was this something you guys have just kind of come up with in discussion and, and kind of contemplation? And the follow-up to that is, if you were teaching a younger version of yourself, any number of concepts, would this, in your mind, be the highest level concept? Or would it be all, I mean, if you had to choose just one subsection of the information you're teaching, because this sounds like it's incredibly a powerful tool to teach someone who maybe is, you know, a child or someone who's young and teach them this as a way of living. Well, here's what I think about this. Uh, it's funny. Uh, Barry and I, this guy, Brian Johnson, I don't know if you know, you know him. Did you I know hear? Brian very well, yeah. What he's suggesting, two things. One, this stuff should be taught in school. Just You think of all the bullshit we learned in school, you know, versus something that will help you in a material way. And my experience, at least with teenagers, I don't have too much experience with really little kids. They, they flock to it. Um, if I tell them, hey, you got a problem, you got to solve it, fuck you. They don't want to. But if I tell them this is a skill that will give you power and you get a little better with your friends, you'll feel more confident, whatever, they want to know that and they don't care about anything else. This stuff is, I just have to say, Phil authored a good 80% of this stuff on his own and taught it to me. So I don't, I don't want to, I want to. I am not a co-author of this material. I don't know where he got it from. I don't know. It's a mystery, but. I'll tell you one thing about this. Thank you. Um, I'll tell you one thing about that. Um, this is not stuff you could learn out of a book. It's impossible. Maybe after you know it, you could teach it to somebody else. But it has to be learned in action. And that's called the, um, that, that thing where you have to open the donut shop. I don't know, but it's but it's experiential learning. It's not it's not didactic. It's not intellectual. It's no, you, you have to feel it instinctually. Number one, and then number two, you have to apply it and see that it works. So if somebody says to me, "Well, I find this superficial, ineffective, and you're just a star fucking whatever they want to say," I say, "That's fine. Try what I'm asking you to do for a week." If you don't feel something, fire me. Please fire me. And it's hard to compete against that. But the whole thing is it's all, it's all empirical, but it's not empirical in, in a um, weak way or a superficial way. 
It's empirical because there's no other way to get at this information. The parent, to be a good parent, you you can't you can't read this. I mean, you should definitely read the books that we have out, and the, the website is has so much free information. In it. What is that called? The tools. The toolsbook.com. Parent, parents get the most complex problem in the world with no instruction booklet. So, mm-hmm. and parents have to face the fact the only way. They can really get inside their kids and strengthen them because that's what the game is really about. The only way they can do that is to change themselves. And again, this moves us far away from the abstract. This is so, so incredible. And we got such a great insight into everything we're doing. So in 2012, you guys wrote The Tools. In 2017, you wrote Coming Alive. And it sounds like in 2022, you guys are launching a brand new website to allow us to go deeper and deeper. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about that, Barry, before you go, I'd love to hear about it. We just want to spread this material. It is so helpful to the people that, you know, we, but, but we can only see a limited number of people. And we, you know, we've spawned other, other tools, practitioners and coaches and stuff like that. And if people need referrals, they can go on the website and ask for them. But we're looking to the website to really make the information public and accessible. It'll have videos, it'll have explanations, it'll have recordings of webinars, we'll have live webinars that people can join to learn more about the tools. It's just going to be a vehicle to really communicate the whole, the, the whole philosophy of the tools and the, and the nitty-gritty practice of how to, how to use particular tools. That's all going to be through the toolsbook.com. Exactly. Phil. Thank you so much for being here, Barry. Absolutely incredible to connect with you both. Uh, thank you very much for making the time and uh, for so much for spreading your wisdom. Uh, you've got a, a student in me. Listen, thanks so much, Ben. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. I hope you enjoyed my podcast with Barry Michaels and Phil Stutz. As I said, uh, tons of value. And if you haven't already picked up their original book, the tools. Uh, go ahead and do that now. Go over to Amazon, do that. You can also go to the toolsbook.com uh, where they continue to provide additional trainings and additional information. And uh, as I say, one of my favorite books, uh, really, uh, of probably of all time, as far as value, I've read at least three or four times by now. And uh, so much wisdom and just actionable wisdom, right? There's there's one thing that's you know theory, but giving you things that you can act on immediately with proof of how they work. Um, I have so much, so much appreciation for uh, Dr. Michaels and Dr. Stutz, as you can hear my voice. And today's podcast, once again, just to remind you, is brought to you by the Heroic app, one of my favorite resources since 2007. I was using this earlier version of this app previously called Philosopher's Notes, then called Optimize.me, now called Heroic, uh, because it's all about you and your hero's journey. And Brian is empowering literally millions of people now to understand all of the wisdom of the ages. And he says, blending modern science and ancient wisdom is truly his mission. He's going to dig into things like stoicism, like the ancient um, psychology uh, textbooks, uh, all and with all the current modern science. So ladies and gents, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash heroic and get hooked up with 20% off when you sign up with for an entire year of the heroic app. And I 
assure you it's a great investment. You're going to love it. And just maybe try to do two books a week to start. And you'll notice how quickly you start to accumulate knowledge and wisdom and understanding of things beyond what you currently know. And ultimately, if you want to become the greatest version of yourself, um, it's the, uh, the, the accumulation of wisdom and then taking action on it, right? So the first step, accumulate wisdom. Second step, let's all crush it together. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Have a great day. Have your greatest life in a body you love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.